1: Welcome to the Future of the Music Business, this is Steve Gordon. Today it's my pleasure to be speaking with the authors of Clearance and Copyright, Everything You Need to Know for Film and Television by Michael Donaldson and Lisa Califf. Mike and Lisa are partners in the entertainment law firm Donaldson and Callis in Beverly Hills. Their book, Clearance and Copyright, is now in its fourth edition, and it's a comprehensive guide almost every conceivable rights issue that filmmakers, video makers, television producers, and Internet content creators might encounter. Before beginning the conversation with Mike and Lisa, though, I'd like to remind my listeners that the forthcoming edition of my book, The Future of the Music Business, will be published by Hal Leonard soon, but you can read excerpts from the book now, including the foreword by indie artist Amanda Palmer and the introductory chapter on the current state of music business at this website. Futureofthemusicbusiness.com. You can also pre-order the fourth edition from the site. So, Mike and Lisa, welcome to the Future of the Music Business. Thank you. Nice to be here. Mike, when was the fourth edition of Clearance and Copyright published, and where is it available? It's available pretty much everywhere—Amazon,
2: all the various outlets on the online. Um, m- at this time of year, many university bookstores, because it's a textbook in about 50 film schools. Uh, and of course, uh, online, either through the publisher or
1: our office, although we, we prefer people go to Amazon to get it. Okay. Well, I've been reading through the book, and I really find it to be fascinating. It's a great read, and it's a great guide for any feature filmmaker or documentary producer. In fact, there are so many topics that you address and great insights that you provide. It's hard to know where to start, but let's start here. Lisa, can you give us a brief overview of the book?
0: Sure, and I think you did a great job of it of doing that at the top of the show. When you said it was a comprehensive guide to rights issues that filmmakers encounter. Um, that's really what we've tried to do. It's, I think it's quite comprehensive, and it's really meant to be a practical tool for producers, even writers and even lawyers and other, other anybody really in the entertainment field who's involved in putting together a project, a motion picture, or a television show, or a webisode, it really gives you all of the answers as to what can you and cannot use, what you, what can you and what can't you use in your program.
2: Cool is there's about thirty contracts, and all you have to do is type in the. Uh, uh, email address that's underneath the contract and you can just download a clean copy of it. So the copy in the book has hints and explanations about various paragraphs and then you just download a clean one that you can use in your own production.
1: Nice. Now I found at the beginning of the book this segment on the history of copyright to be fascinating. I learned a lot I didn't know. But can you give us an idea of what copyright is—a basic review of what copyright is and how it applies to filmmakers?
0: Michael gives the most fun ex- <laughs> explanation of copyright laws dating all the way back to the 1400s.
1: So. Right, Henry the Sabbath, <laughs> in, a, in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah We'll just—that uh, uh, was fun. Uh, truncate a little
2: bit. The um, it's a, it gives. It gives authors uh, a, a monopoly over what they write for a limited period of time in order to encourage them to uh, create new works. And that's the whole reason we have copyright law, to encourage new works, which baffles some people. Because the, in order to encourage new works, you have to allow future authors to draw on things that are created today. And they, uh, they provide that through something called fair use. It's something that exists in all copyright systems around the world, that um, there's some consideration for using other people's stuff to create something new. In most countries, it's a little narrower than here, but uh, it's, uh, it's all around the world. The copyright itself, of course, uh, gives authors control over who can distribute a work, who can make a derivative work of it, who can perform it publicly, all those sorts of things.
1: Right. And an author can be a filmmaker or a playwright or a musician, etc. Absolutely right. A
2: sculptor, a photographer, you know, a choreographer, Address designer uh, very long list
1: as long as you're creating something new all right now now that we know what copyright is uh what are the benefits of registering your copyrights uh particularly for a filmmaker and and what can be registered, and how do you get it done
0: um I'll tackle that one. You know, registration, copyright registration, well, to back up a little bit, I think it's important for the listeners to understand that copyright attaches the minute you put pen to paper. You know, the Copyright Act says as long as it's in a tangible medium of expression. So a film that's on video, a script that's written, copyright, you have that copyright protection. You are the sole owner and nobody has a right to make a copy of that without your permission. So you already have that right from the beginning. But the benefit of copyright registration is really comes into play with litigation. So if you don't register your copyright, your your script or your film, you cannot sue. So once you registered your uh, your product, let's call it, in with the copyright office, you have the right to sue for copyright infringement. And then another great benefit of registering your product in, with the copyright office is that you're entitled to statutory damages if you register in a timely fashion so if you register before any sort of infringement action is brought against before I'm sorry before you want to bring an infringement action um, you're entitled to statutory damages which means you don't have to prove that there was an actual loss or actual harm and those statutory damages range from $750 on the low end for something that was a kind of a negligent infringement all the way up to $250,000 for something that's willful Right. That's really a great benefit of registration, but it really comes into play if there's a problem.
1: Now, for a filmmaker, um, suppose the movie is in the can. Uh, Would you register the entire movie, and would you register anything prior to finalizing the movie?
0: Well, typically, the, sc- the script has to be registered. If, if your film goes into production, the script has to be registered if you're doing any sort of guild production. So if SAG or the WGA or the DGA is involved, they're going to require copyright registration for your script. So that will need to be registered at that point. And then the film is typically registered when it's completely done. It's not actually a good idea to have a bunch of different versions of the same um item or the same film in the copyright office because that actually could confuse things.
1: Now are there any additional benefits that you can get from registration with the WGA, the Writers Guild of America? It's the so advantage there is that it's not public
2: and mm-hmm. and many people uh, will register uh-huh. very very early like a treatment to prove that they, they, they were the
1: first people to come up with this particular concept right and concepts can't be protected by copyright law but if you register the treatment with the WGA you got proof that it was your idea and then if you're a writer how do you protect that idea in making a pitch to a producer well not only uh,
2: before you go out and start making pitches should you register for the writers guild uh... you should keep a good record uh... you know keep a calendar of who you meet with and when and you should create a paper trail uh... kind of like your mother taught you to do where you just write afterwards and say it was great to meet with you yesterday about my New script about um, lesbians with, from Mars with a three-legged dog <laughs> come to L.A. to you know whatever, and 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 then you um, uh, you know say you know thank you for making time I really appreciate it. Uh, this doesn't look like a legal document, but it sure helps you if you think somebody. Stole your script because you have a written record of who was in the meeting, what was discussed, when it happened. Very helpful. Write those thank you
1: notes. Well, what I love about the book is you back up uh, this guidance with actual cases where you show how certain writers won in court uh, for uh, their ideas, which they weren't compensated for, and the steps that they took in order to, to win in court. Uh, so it's really helpful. Uh, and I learned a lot from that section. Uh, but since this show is primarily about the music biz, uh, let's get into some music business issues, uh, but related to making movies. Uh, first, uh, if I wanted to use some popular music, say Elvis, or Sinatra, or The Stones, in my movie, um, if I wanted that kind of popular music for my indie movie, my low-budget indie movie, how would I go about clearing it? Well, um,
0: the first thing you would want to do is, hire a good music supervisor and you know in our office we do help with the licensing of music really to review the licenses and make sure that all of the rights are there that you need to exploit your film with the music in it but the first step is really to hire a music supervisor who has the relationships with the record labels and the publishers and even the estates and knows what's reasonable to get and what's not you know you may say i really want to sell this elvis presley song and a lot of music supervisors might know you know what elvis presley Estate isn't licensing anything right now because they're doing their own project and
1: mm-hmm.
0: valuable information about what's available the cost of things and they have those good relationships with those people so they can negotiate rates for you you know we work on so many small independent films and people always want to get good rates on music and other types of intellectual properties they want to put in their movies. But it's tough to do when you're just a one-off producer. But if you team up with somebody like a great music supervisor who works on film after film after film, that music supervisor can really um, help you with getting those deals and making sure you have the music that you really want at a price you can afford.
1: Yeah, and uh, my impression of music supervisors is they can also help creatively, that they can help you select new music that, they have knowledge of because they hear so much and make uh, help you make creative choices. That's part of the job of the music supervisor as well, right?
0: Yeah, and that actually can be the main role of some. You know, Some do just the creative, some do just the clearance, some do both, but it's great when you can find someone who does both. I, I've been working with a lot of music supervisors lately on different films, and what's so cool about them is that they can suggest things. You know, you say you want the Salvis Presley song or you want the Beatles song, but then they'll have an alternative that's a fraction of the price that fits the mood of the film. It's the same, you know, the same timing and same BPMs. And it's so cool how they then they have those ideas right off the top of their head. And I kind of wish I had that knowledge of music. <laughs> it's really cool, but it's it's fun to see them work and really how see how they help a filmmaker.
1: Yeah, and those personal relationships are really so important. Um, you know, if you use a lawyer clearance service, they deal with publishers and labels all day long, and know everybody there and know what to expect and how to advise a client. Uh, for instance, what to avoid uh, getting your heart set on, <laughs> because there are some things that won't clear ever. Uh, but personal relationships, for instance, I had a client who wanted some James Brown movie, uh, music in a very low-budget uh, movie, basically an art movie, and I was told by the publishing company, you know, there's there's no way right now you're going to get it. But my client had a relationship with the the music supervisor for Brown's estate, and that worked uh and we got permission where I was helpful was I got the price down by limiting the rights because these days and tell me if I'm wrong, but movies don't necessarily have to be released theatrically and in every media. Uh, in order to be successful, um, I had a friend actually wrote music for a movie that was just released to uh, BET. Um, so how often these days do you try to pare down the windows and advise your client, look, you don't need so-called broad rights. Uh, you can get the price down uh, by limiting the windows to what you really need. Not the only window I'm comfortable in eliminating is the theatrical window
2: because as you say, most indie films don't see a re- theatrical release and you pretty well know that by the time you're licensing music. But, yeah. Um, all the others we like to keep the VOD and the internet and, and DVD and Blu-ray all um, we, we, we find that the reason these films make money without the theatrical is because they really work all the streams all the time.
0: Uh-huh. And tagging on to what Michael was saying, is a lot of times mm-hmm. my point is as long as those rates are locked in for the other types of exploitation, it's fine to limit the rights but what the dangerous thing is just to get a festival license and that's it and then try to renegotiate later. But if you get a festival license with the other types of media already locked, or the price is already locked in, you just have to write a check when that happens, that's really helpful. Especially because sometimes, right. you know, you might get picked up by a distributor who wants to change the opening title and you pay $20,000 for it, you know. So I think that is a good thing where you can do a step deal, but again, it's that locking in what the price is going to be if you do upgrade, which is so important.
1: Right. Okay. Now I want to turn our attention to something that Mike Donaldson is a pioneer in, which is fair use for filmmakers. Because, uh, Mike, I mean, tell us a little bit about your history with fair use and filmmaking. Wow. It started uh, about 10
2: years ago in the uh, um, statement of best practices for documentary films in fair use. And then... Uh, you know, you have these things that happen every now and then. Um, New York Times wanted to follow me around on a negotiation. Uh, they, um, the, the, uh, the filmmaker had uh, negotiated to the best of their ability on a whole number of clips and the total price would have been $450,000. Um, they had 250000 in their budget. They came to me. Um, we helped them get everything within fair use. We got insurance, and then we called uh, all the rights holders, which are mostly studios, and offered them a thousand dollars a title. Right. Uh, so when it all got said and done, the total bill was forty-five thousand. Well, the the New York Times did a huge article on it. I was shocked. Uh, And they, because they talked to a lot of the rights holders, why did you do this? Blah, blah. Uh, That that brought a lot of business, and then we um, we uh, negotiated with um, one of the insurance companies so that this kind of insurance would be publicly and and. Honestly, provided to filmmakers across the board. When we used to get coverage for fair use, it was always non precedential confidential, you know, all of the above. So we, um, we we got what they call a fair use rider, and all the other insurance companies immediately followed. There was a lot of publicity around that. So um, that. That blossomed. Uh, the, the industry changed attitudes. They they might not like fair use, but they knew that it was out there and that it would uh, be an option for people. So they better they better pay attention. So it's been a it's been a wonderful, uh, very satisfying ride to, to see the the. Uh, uh, increased use of this important aspect of copyright law, first by documentary filmmakers, and also now by narrative filmmakers.
1: I want to get into that in a second, but uh, you know, to give the listeners an idea of how it works, I just did a fair use letter for an educational video about William Shakespeare that used a lot of fifteen to thirty second clips from various movies uh like McBass and uh BBC productions and so on and so on. And if we had to pay the going rate, of course it would be it would have been hundreds of thousands of dollars, but since we only used a little bit and we commented upon each excerpt, uh we were able to opine that the documentary used many of these clips, not all of them, but many of them in a way that was fair use. And I attached that letter to the e application, submitted it to the insurance company, and we got our insurance so that if there is a claim, uh, we're indemnified against it. And so we were able to launch this educational video. And without, uh, you, Michael Donaldson, and this fair use insurance, uh, we would have never been able to do it. Well, and let's, uh, let's take it
2: a step further and give the listeners a, a simple test for documentary filmmakers because the, the way the statutes worded, some people have a hard time ap- applying it to specific situations. But if you're making a documentary, there are three questions that if you answer yes, it's not only fair use, it's in the safe harbor. It's almost unassailable. For instance, uh, well, the, the three questions are, Number one, are you using the material to illustrate a point that you are already making in your documentary? And number two, do you only use what is reasonably appropriate? And number three, is the connection between what you use and the point that you're illustrating clear to the average viewer? Um, The second question, of course, reasonably appropriate, has uh, a bit of flexibility in it, because different people see that in different ways. The courts have been pretty flexible on the issue of length, uh, because that's part of the creative decision. But those three questions give you a safe harbor. And if you get a mushy answer to one of them, doesn't mean you it isn't fair use. You're just outside of that very safe area where we like to keep clients if we
1: can. <laughs> well, let's turn our attention specifically to fair use and music and movies. And I know there's not as much case law here as uh, use of uh, film clips, but let's start with this uh, distinction. Isn't there a difference in the application of fair use and music in a movie depending on whether the movie is a doc the well, I don't think there's a difference
2: in the application so much as documentaries, many, many documentaries, will be about music or about a particular composer or about a particular singer, and that gives lots and lots of opportunities for fair use. Uh, but, uh, and, and let's face it, a totally fictional film that uses music as underscore will never be, that will never be fair use. And it won't be fair use in a documentary either if you're using music as an underscore. So if you can answer those three questions that I just spelled out for music in a documentary, it will turn out to be fair use. You, not too long ago, it was our opinion that John Lennon singing 15 seconds of Imagine would be fair use. Boy, Yoko Ono sued right away, and she lost very quickly and was hit with uh, attorney's fees, um, had to pay the filmmaker's attorney's fees. Um, And that that had such notoriety that it really helped wake up the the music industry to the fact that um, uh, music is not insulated from Fair uses. It's just harder because music, uh, you know, a song is short, so you um, can can stub your toe on the on the length pretty quickly. But um, the, the use of music is, uh, is certainly up for grabs in fair use. Yeah, just
0: to add on to what Michael was saying, you know, the right. difficult thing about music is that. Most people use music as score. They use it for the entertainment value of it rather than um, as commentary or for the purpose of making a comment on something or for supporting that comment. And so when we have a documentary that's about music or about a musician, you know, it's a lot easier to fair use limited portions of their songs. they're actually talking about them. But if most of the time you know, filmmakers are using it as score, and when it's being used as score, we can't fair use that.
1: Right, and I think just to highlight the contrast, if uh, Yoko's case dealt with 15 seconds of Imagine, or about 15 seconds, where the documentary actually addresses uh, the lyrics in Imagine and makes the comment that if John Lennon, if you pushed his logic all the way to the extreme, Imagine a World with No Religion, that you'd have Stalinism. And, of course, Yoko was not uh, a fan Of the documentary. But, uh, to contrast, (laughs) right, (laughs) a big one. But she lost, and I believe the decision was correctly decided. But to contrast that, if you had a feature movie about, you know, I don't know, the uh, time period, uh, and you walk into a nightclub, or the characters walk into a nightclub, and they hear somebody singing Imagine, and then they start, you know, doing dialogue, and you hear the Imagine song in the background, that would be a different case correct it, it is a different case um,
2: but if the if it's, if it's totally um, out of the filmmakers control what is being sung? they just have a permission to shoot a scene as long as they don't disrupt anything and know we're not going to turn the music down and um, it's very brief with dialogue over it, uh, it's not featured in any way. Um, I, I can see uh, circumstances where where that might be fair use if, um, if if you have you know the lead couple at a music festival and there's some fairly audible band playing in the background for um, you know a fairly short period of time. I can see where that would be fair use, but uh, but you're right. When you get into narrative films, there's not many situations which lend
1: itself to fair use of music. Okay. Now, we've talked about copyright. We've talked about the exception to copyright or defense of, against copyright, which is fair use. Let's talk about and finish the conversation with something that I deal with a lot, uh, celebrity rights. Because I work with a lot of documentary filmmakers uh, who do biopics, or documentaries, I should say. That's the big distinction between a biopic and a doc, and we'll get into that in a second. But I guess we'll start with this hypothetical. Um, suppose somebody wants to do a documentary about a famous uh, music artist, um, and suppose that artist has passed away, uh whether it's Elvis or Sean Lennon, Um, What are the issues in dealing or not dealing with the estate in the context of a doc and then in the the context of a feature film? What do you have to be careful about?
0: Um, You know, we, we talk about this a lot in our office, and I think that the distinction between a doc and a feature film isn't as important as just what the underlying rules are because they apply equally to both you know, so long as you're telling a truthful story about someone who's living or dead, dead is easier because their rights of privacy have gone away, um, but as long as you're telling an accurate, truthful story, you can do that without the rights of that person. That's you know, so what the First Amendment allows us to do, It allows us to tell a truthful story. Um, a lot of people get caught up with, I need the life rights, I need rights to do this, I need rights to do that, and... There's a lot of very good reasons to have life rights, but from a legal perspective, you can go ahead and make your project without obtaining any rights, so long as you're relying on accurate information that's publicly available.
1: So why deal with the estate at all?
0: Who knows? No. <laughs> <laughs> to make your life more difficult. Um, mm-hmm. my, there's a good reason that I think to deal with the estate or is one, access. They may have information, memorabilia, photo albums, that type of thing that you want to use in your, in your, um, in your film. And another, I think the most important reason to get those rights is the waiver. Usually, when you enter into a life rights agreement, there's a waiver of claims. And with that waiver of claims comes a lot of security and a lot of um, reassurance for both you as a filmmaker, the financiers, and any distributor who comes on board. So, I think that waiver of rights is really an important element of any life rights deal. And the exclusivity. You know, someone else may be doing an unauthorized right. picture, but That's nobody else point. is dealing with the estate or with that person directly.
2: Good point. You can add a paragraph that they will participate in promotion of the film. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. There, are, there are advantages, but the First Amendment says you can make. A truthful story, either a documentary or a narrative, um, and, uh, and not have, uh, uh, the permission of the, of the subject. And, and it's interesting. Mm-hmm. The courts have dealt with tr- true, based on true facts, the same as they do a documentary, um, the musical, uh, Jersey Boys. Right has a clip of Ed Sullivan at the bottom of the first act, where he says, You know here, ladies and gentlemen, not four seasons um and that was used pursuant to fair use right and the court the court upheld it by the way
1: I got you, I got you, and also uh in terms of defendability, I think the play uh was in New York, and uh Celebrity rights, or what's known as right of publicity, uh, doesn't descend. So um, they were out of luck on that one, too. Um, but now I want to le- uh, ask uh, what lawyers love to do, uh, a leading question, and I think we'll end on this one. The leading question is, wouldn't it make a difference if you wanted to make uh, either a documentary or a feature uh, about uh, a music artist uh whether living or dead, uh, if you wanted to include his music in the movie?
2: Again, it depends on how you want to include it. If you include it in a way where it's just in a reasonably appropriate amount to illustrate a point, um, it would fall under fair use. If you're using it as underscore, it would never be fair use. And I suppose there are a lot of things in between those two categories.
0: It, I think what takes away from a music doc when you're using music pursuant to fair use is you know, what, part of what makes a music doc so great is hearing all of the music. You know, um, right. Uh, right. a lot of it and gratuitously, and you want to play it for a long time. And when you're subject to the constraints of fair use, you can't do that. You know, you have to for the purpose of, express, of demonstrating a point, not because this music is so great, so I, a lot we work on a lot of music docs, and there's always a combination of fair use and license, and I think that lends itself to the filmmaker being able to play a lot of music, but then also have some songs that may be impossible or difficult to license. Use those under fair use, but to do a whole music doc under fair use, and you're going to come up with one of those, what may be one of those like you know inexpensive kind of short bio. Docs on on an artist where they don't really play any music and you wonder why there's no music in it (laughs) because they didn't get the rights. So that that's what I, you know, was hard about.
1: uh, Yes, I think that's a great point. Yeah, and to give you an example, we did a movie called, a documentary called The Night James Brown Saved Boston where you see James doing full performances and uh, we had the cooperation of the estate, if you can believe that, and uh, because the estate is, uh, you know, that's a drama in itself. (laughs) but uh we had the cooperation and uh we got licenses to use the music because james brown wrote a lot and if we didn't have the cooperation in the state we couldn't have used the music the way we did uh folks it's been a great uh pleasure and honor uh to have you on the show do you have any parting shots for our listeners about the book or anything else
2: well, we we uh, we always love to plug the book because it's so helpful to so many filmmakers and uh, and it saves them so much money. If you go to a lawyer having a good handle on fair use or a good handle on uh, life story rights, or uh, you're just much much better off. So we we love to plug the book. We uh, we we've been told by so many filmmakers about uh, how much money it saved them especially on their first or second film where they're just getting started they don't have a lot of extra money and uh, they have reliable
1: uh, a lot of reliable information it's called clearance and copyright everything you need to know for film and television by Michael Thompson and Lisa Calif partners in the law firm of Allison and Califf in Beverly Hills thanks folks for being on our show today thanks Steve Thank you. good to be here no,